Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, everybody. What's cracking? What is crack-a-lackin'? It's always an important question. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque. Grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This is episode 58. Dun, dun, dun. If you're starting with this one, please go back one to the first of this two-part series. Last week we covered the first seven heinous murders of Clifford Robert Olson Jr., the monster who stalked the lower mainland of BC in 1980 and 81. I was just going to say, it seems like, in my memory, it seemed like to go on a lot longer than no, it was, 81. It was like nine months. That's crazy. Olson called himself the Beast of BC, giving himself his own narcissistic but accurate handle, kind of like BTK did. Yeah, yep, yep, buying torture kill. As we mentioned last week, all of the victims are children. This will be a very difficult case for many, including Scott and myself. Yep. We've done our best to leave out unnecessary detail that does not move the story forward. That said, these crimes are horrendous, and we wish to warn our more sensitive listeners that these episodes may not be right for you. Yep. As well, again, we want to thank listener Rebecca McNall for helping to research this massive case. Big thanks. Really big. This week, we pick up where we left off. Having committed murders of seven Lower Mainland children in only seven and a half short months, Clifford Olson was not quite finished. Four more Lower Mainland children were yet to be slain in the bloodiest week the region had ever seen, all perpetrated by one insatiable monster. This is Beast of BC Part 2, Hell Week and Aftermath. On July 23, 1981, only two days after returning from a family vacation to Knott'sbury Farm, Clifford Olson was on the hunt again. Raymond King Jr., 15, 
hopped on his bike to head over to Canada Manpower Youth Employment Centre in New West. He dreamed of earning his own money, maybe earning enough one day to have his own car. As he chained up his bike behind the building, the slightly built, sandy-haired boy with the impish smile was approached by Clifford Olson. Olson used his tried-and-true lure of a promise of work, exactly what Raymond King was looking for. Raymond hopped in Olson's car, another rental from Metro in Port Coquitlam. Olson tried to use a different car for each of his crimes, making him harder to identify and his crimes tougher to connect. Olson drove them down Highway 7 toward Harrison Mills, offering beer and pills to the youngster. They ended up on a bumpy, logging road that led to a provincial campground near Alpine Lake. Olson sexually assaulted Raymond numerous times before driving a three-inch spike into the top of the boy's head. Clifford dragged Ray, now limp, up to a cliffside trail and dumped him over. Olson threw boulders down onto the boy, ensuring the large stones hit him in the head and chest. Raymond King died there. When Raymond King did not come home, Ray King Sr. knew something was wrong right away. Raymond was a happy boy and would never run away. When Raymond's bike was found behind the manpower building, still chained there, cops agreed. Perhaps another victim of foul play. Oh, hearing the description of the death of Spike, oh. I debated whether or not to leave that in, but it does speak to Olsen's uh, beginning to experiment with weird things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not getting too graphic with it, and, and it does tell a bit of the to- story of who he is and how he does things. And yeah, stuff. there was more detail around yeah. that, but I didn't get into it. No, but just, yeah, the visual, the, um, yeah, oh, God. Not knowing what he'd just done, Police chatted with Clifford Olson at his home in Coquitlam that evening. Oh, wow. They told him that they wanted to know if he could inform for them for cash. Oh, wow. He'd informed a few times before. Yeah. And this was their way of getting him to trust them. Oh. Olson claimed he had information about robberies and murders from the book Where Shadows Linger. Quote, Olson made no commitment. However, he referred to a newspaper article about Simon Partington, a missing boy from Surrey. How reliable do you think the witness is in this case, he asked. He was referring to the description of a suspicious blonde male accompanying a young boy answering Partington's description. I've got three ideas, Olson continued. It was a hit and run with the body dumped. Two, it was kidnapping. Or maybe it was a pervert. Olson then ruled out kidnapping as he felt Simon's family had little money. I will try to help, Olson replied, but it will be difficult and it will cost money, end quote. Wow, what a piece of shit trying to profit already off of the crime he's done. It gets worse. Oh my God. Cops said they had to think about it and would meet him on July 29th to firm things up. They wanted more information on the child murders and Clifford was claiming he had it. They were really beginning to believe he was good for these crimes. The cops were trying to get Olsen to talk, using money as a motivator. They knew he was greedy and loved to blather. Oh, wow, yeah. The recommendations to surveil Olsen were bogged down in red tape and bureaucracy. There were talks about appropriate use of resources without sufficient evidence. He was still able to prowl at will. (sighs) On July 25th, 1981, Judy Cosma's body was found near Weaver Lake only two days after Raymond King disappeared. 
Judy, who had been missing since July 9th, was found to have been sexually assaulted and viciously stabbed in the torso, neck, and head. Ugh. They found her relatively close to where Darren Johnsrud had been discovered in early May. Hmm. Yeah. Oh. So he's starting to form a little bit of a pattern. Yeah. Uh, much like the dumping sites of, say, Ted Bundy or... Green River Killer. Yeah. yeah, they have areas that they feel comfortable in. And he was definitely one of those. Yeah. The fact that these two bodies were found in close proximity to one another was not lost on the police. It reinforced the idea they were dealing with a serial predator. Also on July 25th, a mere two days after his last murder, Olsen was at work again cruising the roads for victims. His next victim would be 18-year-old Sigrun Arnd, a German student touring in Vancouver with a larger group. Sigrun was from a small Rhine Valley town near the Swiss border called Weinheim. Her father was the owner of a watch shop there. She was visiting Canada as she loved anything to do with the English language. She relished the opportunity to learn about the culture and speak to native English speakers. She had gone to visit a cousin in nearby Coquitlam while the rest of her group was on a day cruise. Sigrun's cousin wasn't home when she arrived so she started to make her way back to Burnaby where she was staying at a youth hostel. She'd have to take a number of BC Transit bus connections. Olsen saw Sigrun waiting for the bus and pulled over to chat her up. She was small, bespectacled, and looked younger than her 18 years. Olsen offered Sigrun a ride back to Burnaby. As she got into the car, Clifford invited her to come and have a drink with him at a local pub. Brazen Olsen took Sigrun to the Village Inn, a pub sharing the same parking lot as the Lougheed Mall. Sigrun seemed happy to be experiencing real local culture and drank beer with Olsen and his associates. Unknown to her, Olsen had been selling stolen construction equipment to these men at a nearby construction site. After a few pitchers of beer with the other men, Clifford offered to drive Sigrun back to Burnaby after showing her around a little bit. Sigrun agreed that sounded like fun. Once in the car, Olsen gave Sigrun another beer. He grinned to himself as she drank. He'd slipped three chloral hydrate sleeping pills, his favorite rape drug, into the girl's beer. Their destination was the peat bogs near Richmond where Olsen had dumped Christine Weller and the yet-to-be-found nine-year-old Simon Partington. As they got out of the car, Sigrun claimed she felt woozy. Olsen gave her a fourth pill telling her it would perk her up. She quickly was even more wobbly on her feet. The pair walked toward the river for a stroll. Clifford was bringing up the rear. Near the train tracks, when Olsen was sure the coast was clear, he produced a heavy framing hammer from inside his coat and brought it down on the back of Sigrun's skull with all his might. He quickly stripped Sigrun and as he was taking off his own shirt, a train whistle sounded. As the train went slowly by, the brakeman running behind the train saw what he believed to be a couple engaged in consensual outdoor sex. Sigrun was barely conscious and could do nothing to save herself. The brakeman and the man nude from the waist up made eye contact. The man waved and smiled at the unsuspecting brakeman. In the weeks later, he would become aware what he'd seen and reported it to the police. After the train was out of sight, Olsen finished his brutal sexual assault. 
Before he beat Sigrun to death with more heavy blows from the hammer, Olsen asked her if she believed in God. He implored Sigrun to pray for him as he went to work crushing her skull. Olsen dumped Sigrun unceremoniously nearby in a ditch filled with stagnant water and covered her with sticks and leaves. And then he left. Wow. Picturing him waving at this brakesman. Just so cold. Like, like just completely... Brazen. Like, like, A, confident. Like, I can do what I want. I can do what I want. Nobody's going to catch me. And, like, just how, like, callous he is. And the dumping of... The way he's dumping of the bodies, like, it shows he has absolutely no remorse. There's no... Like, when you're just, ca- like, throwing them down into a ditch and covering them with, like... There isn't a sign of compassion or, oh, God, what have I done? Let me make them, you know, make them feel like at home. Like, no, just. No, he was I done. Don't, it just, I don't give a shit about your, like you, bye. They had served their purpose. Yeah, too. yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. <clears throat> On July 27th, 1981, two days later, he was at it again. Wow. This was the day that the RCMP surveillance was to begin in earnest. Hmm. However, Olsen was up early and on the prowl before police could get set up on him. Oh, no. When 15-year-old animal lover Terry Lynn Carson left home that morning, she was on her way to apply for a part-time job at a local pet shop called Finn and Feathers. Cruising in the Guilford area, Olsen spotted Terry Lynn, barely five feet tall and just over a hundred pounds at a bus stop. He pulled over and went into his usual spiel, offering her a ride and a possibility of a job, and Terry Lynn climbed into Clifford's car. Terry celebrated a new job with Clifford and a chloral hydrate-laced beer. Olsen drove down the highway with the drunken and now drugged girl toward the city of Hope two and a half hours away. In hope, he cashed traveler's checks he'd stolen from his previous victim, Sigrun Arndt. He signed them Robert Johnson and felt pen. The bank teller didn't notice the crude forgery. Driving back toward the lower mainland, Clifford pulled off onto a logging road near Agassiz. Once out of the car, he brutally raped Terry Lynn, hammering a screwdriver into her head, breaking it off in her skull. Not dead from the hammer blows, Clifford dragged Terry Lynn to a ditch where he dumped her face down in the water and stood on her back until she drowned. And then he drove off. Yeah. Uh, sorry to be so blunt, but fuck this guy. Yeah. Like, oh my God. There's uh, not a lot to say. No. It was that afternoon when RCMP set up on Clifford Olson's residence for their intense surveillance. Too late for Terry Lynn Carson, his 10th murder victim. They saw Olson pull up in his car, which had been freshly through a car wash. Hmm. He went inside, showered, and hunkered down for the night. Like the timing of that. Terry Lynn's mom called around when her daughter didn't come home that night. None of Terry Lynn's friends had seen her all day, even though they'd made plans together. Terry Lynn had not shown up for her job interview at the pet shop either. Her mom called the police. Again, 
police treated the case as a runaway. She was 15, lived in Surrey, and came from a broken home. Oh, yeah, but uh, again, you know, when you've had this string in such a short time span of missing people. But that's how ingrained it was in the cops that people just go missing in Surrey. Young girls run away uh, all the time. Just That's so infuriating. It's insulting, yeah. as I wrote here. Yeah, no, it... it it really is. Yeah. Cops believe Clifford knew he was being followed. He zigged and zagged all over town, losing them multiple times, only to show up minutes later to have the whole thing repeat itself. Mm. The surveillance team was frustrated, gave up after five and a half hours on the first day. Oh, what? In truth, Olson was not onto them at all. He was just doing his thing. I think they had to go back and regroup and make a better plan. To oh, okay. Guy. Well, that, that, that makes sense then. Because I don't think you're like, ooh, this is too tough. Let's not surveil him. <laughs> no, I don't think that's how it went down. A day ahead of the scheduled meeting on Tuesday, July 28, 1981, cops met Olson in the parking lot of the Caribou Motel. He wanted $3,000 a month to be a confidential informant. Geez, in 81, that's some loot. Delta Detective Dennis Tarr told Olson he might be able to do better. He told Clifford that the cops were prepared to offer as much as $100,000 for information on the child killings. Uh-huh. Clifford bit. I bet he did. Pick a number between 1 and 10, Olson said to Tar. Hmm. 9, said Tar. I tell you what, a grinning Olson said. I'll give you a letter, and in that letter will be nine numbers, each one corresponding to a location. What you find there will be your business. Wow. Okay. Tar pressed Clifford for more information about what they would find at the locations. Clifford said that he didn't want to testify as he'd be seen as a snitch. He had his family to worry about. Hmm. The meeting ended with Tar pretty much thinking, gotcha, as the two planned another meet in the next two days. Yeah, that was pretty pretty smart of them to use uh, such a large amount of money to, because they know what his motivation is, like he'll do anything for money. Yep, and he thought he was pulling one over on them too. The next day, Wednesday, July 29th, 1981, the day Charles and Diana got married, hmm. Clifford Olson was arrested and detained after he and two other men had picked up a couple teenage girls and got them drunk. Cops moved in before anything more serious occurred. That same night in Nova Scotia, 4,300 miles away, another attempted abduction and sexual assault was committed by yet another monster. The 11-year-old involved in that assault had been following the newspaper articles at the time about the kids going missing in B.C., his knowledge of what was going on out west made the event even scarier. Oh. Although he got away physically unhurt, he was damaged mentally and emotionally from the attack that haunted him for decades later. Oh. That boy was me. Oh, Mikey. That's my monster story oh. right in the middle of Clifford Olson. No doing his kidding. Thing. As the Olson case was unfolding at the exact same time as I was processing my trauma, I have forever felt a connection to this case. Yeah, I'm I almost bet. crying here. Yeah. Learn more back in episode 10. This, coupled with the region all these murders occurred in that we now call home, makes this story so much more personal to us. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, the timing of that, like trauma uh, mixed with trauma. Right. Will be create a haunting a haunting memory. It was all over the papers, even as far back as no in Nova Scotia. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And then to have what happened to you, right, in in the midst of that. Yeah, it'd be impossible to not think, is this what's going to happen to me? 
Yeah. My fear of what was happening out here is partially what made me fight my monster so hard. Who knows, I may have otherwise gone along. Olson was released at 3.30 a.m. on the morning of July 30th, 1981 without charge. One more had yet to die. Olson was off to meet his lawyer that day. Louise Chartrand, described as a young-looking and small-for-her-age 17-year-old, had successfully hitchhiked into Maple Ridge where she worked at Dino's Restaurant and Lowheed Highway. She was early for work. She stopped in at a corner store to buy a pack of smokes and kill some time around town before her shift. She didn't really like her job much, but it was better than nothing. A car pulled up to where she was sitting smoking. Clifford Olson rolled down the window and went into his manpower-hiring teenager's lure. Louise got into the car and Clifford plied her with booze and pills and they drove toward Whistler up the Sea to Sky Highway, presumably away from the prying eyes of the cops to the east where they were watching for Clifford. Olson took Louise to a secluded gravel pit just off the highway near Whistler. He repeatedly raped and sodomized the drunk, drugged, and bound Louise for hours. When she got out of the car to urinate, Clifford smashed her in the back of the head with his hammer. While Louise was still breathing, Clifford pushed her into a depression in the ground and covered her with rocks and gravel until he couldn't see her anymore. He then washed his hands with the whiskey that he'd been sharing with her, took her valuables and got into the car and left. He washed his car at a garage, unseen, made it home at about 6.15 in the morning, had a bath, and told his wife Joan to pack. They were going to Alberta. The cops were trying to frame him, he said. Oh, man. So that's the 11th one. Yeah. Yeah, what, just like, everything is so common. It's not like, yeah, what a disgusting human being. Like, especially hearing when he's talking about binding them or just, you know, subduing them. It brings me back to my traumas too. Like, just, I can, I can remember that fear. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, just, oh my God. I wish monsters like him didn't exist. Me too. He'd committed four brutal murders in the span of seven days. What drove him to kill at such a rate? Perhaps it was the stress of being under the microscope. Maybe he knew his time was short. From The Evil That Men Do, FBI profiler Ray Hazelwood's Journey into the Minds of Sexual Predators by Stephen G. Michaud. We have found that a person with paraphilias is more likely to commit one of these types of activities when he's under a great deal of stress, Roy mm -hmm. answered. Yep, and, and as the microscope is uh, closing in on you, yep. then that's going to create more stress and, and more. But I wonder like, what, why that is subconsciously. Does it, are, are they trying to like, get themselves caught subconsciously? Is it kind of like, you know, because you, you have to recognize that me doing this more isn't, it's going to equal a greater likelihood of getting caught. I read some things where a few psychiatrists said that the, that Olson believed he would never be caught. Really? Yeah, and he yeah. just thought he could get away with it forever. Just that confidence of like, yep. yeah, no, I'm too good at this. Yeah, okay. As Louise Chartrand's sisters were worrying about her whereabouts and talking to police, Clifford lambed it to Calgary with Joan and Clifford Jr. in tow. He'd given the cops the slip again. He even called and tried to lure another girl living in Calgary 
who he'd hurt before, but luckily she refused to meet him. Hmm. On August 5th, 1981, my 12th birthday, the body of another young male was found brutally murdered near Weaver Lake in a ravine covered in rocks. Hmm. This turned out to be Raymond King, missing since July 23rd, 1981, the first of Olson's final four. Olson returned to Coquitlam that week and was now under 24-hour surveillance. Good. He was tough to follow, still zipping all over randomly, and he was never driving the same car for long. Oh, weird. Okay. From a crime library article, he also had a habit of continually changing rental cars. A Pinto, a Mustang, a Bobcat, a Lynx, a Honda, a panel truck, a Citation, an Escort, an Omega, and an Acadian. Oh, wow. They did manage to observe him committing crimes without his detecting that they were watching. Hmm. He'd be and eat a home, making off with airline tickets and a man's passport, as well as his coin collection. They also watched him steal goods from local stores and swindle an elderly man out of his old age pension check. All they could do was sit back and watch. The task force needed information about the murders, but they were still learning a lot about Clifford Olson in the meantime. So he's just like a general overall piece of shit. He was a criminal. Like just like, just no conscience. Taking money from elderly essentially. Like just, yeah. Just absolute disregard for any other human. We'll, we will get into what psychiatrists think of Cliffy mm, later boy, on. That's going to be fascinating. On August 12th, 1981, Clifford took the ferry to Victoria on Vancouver Island. After burgling two houses there, he drove north toward Nanaimo. He picked up a couple of girls hitchhiking and the surveillance team started to get worried. Oh, no kidding. When Clifford pulled into a secluded spot in the woods and got out of the car, police closed in. They couldn't risk jeopardizing the safety of these girls any further. Clifford had only stopped to pee. (sighs) Regardless, when he saw the cops coming at him, he bolted. After a very quick chase, he was apprehended and handcuffed. Interesting. Clifford was indignant, claiming he'd done nothing wrong. However, upon a search of him, they found his notebook. In it was the name of Judy Cosma. Hmm. This piece of evidence finally linked him to one of the murder victims they'd found weeks before. He was charged with two counts of B&E and contributing to the delinquency of a minor times two. He was taken back to the cells in Burnaby, and it's behind bars that the rest of the Clifford Olson story plays out. He was nowhere near done hurting people, though. Yeah, no, yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, I'm glad that they were able to hold him on B&E and delinquency of a minor charges because that gets him off the streets. Exactly. So he's off the streets. Yeah. And we'll take a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's get to know Clifford Olson. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Clifford Robert Olson was born on July 1st, 1940, around 10, 10 p.m. in St. Paul's Hospital in downtown Vancouver. Hmm. Clifford's mom worked in the cannery and his dad was in the Canadian Armed Forces during World War II. Hmm. They were not married when Clifford Jr. was born and didn't legitimize their union until he was three, so he was born a bastard. That's what they would put on your birth certificate. Was that actually? That's what they would actually put on it. Well, I was was born just a few years after that would have happened for me. 
Uh, Olsen had a stomach blockage at birth that required surgery. Clifford's dad, being in the military, was gone a lot of the time, so Clifford didn't receive much discipline at Mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. Clifford claimed that one of his earliest memories at four years old was his 15-year-old uncle playing a game with him and his sister. The trio would strip, and the uncle would lay down on top of each child who was face down. They were given nickels to keep their mouths shut. Clifford said he would later play the game uncle with other kids, himself being the uncle. Clifford started lying early on as well to deflect trouble or to prop himself up in the eyes of others. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have no sympathy for Olsen the adult, but uh, if that story is true, I, I, I don't want anybody to, to be abused at any point in time. No. Clifford would tell people he was the first baby of the new year and much celebrated, but this was a lie. There were six others born in the hospital before him. Mm. His lack of discipline at home made Clifford a real handful at school. He was defiant, rude, and would routinely lie to his teachers. As early as 10, it's reported that Clifford began flashing knives at little girls and forcing them into the bushes so he could ogle and grope them. So this really started young. Yep. He was skipping class and stealing. Olsen took up boxing and got fairly fit and strong, even for his smaller stature. He started selling newspapers at the Lansdowne Racetrack, where he began to meet all kinds of interesting characters. Mm. Is that now the Hastings? No, it's a different one. He later worked at Hastings. Oh, okay. Sick of being told what to do, Clifford left school in 1956 and began working at Lansdowne Track more often. After that, his career as a criminal began in earnest. Between 1957 and 1981, Clifford Olson was arrested 94 times for crimes such as fraud, armed robbery, sexual assault, firearms offenses, and burglary. At 41 years old, he had spent only four years of his adult life as a free man. Holy shit. Wow. 94. 94 arrests. Holy cow. In 1959, Clifford Olson stumbled onto two other prisoners raping a 16-year-old male inmate. Oh, God. Rather than assist the boy, Clifford yelled, me next, and waited in to participate. Oh, Olsen was paroled later that year, but his parole was revoked as he was caught again committing break-ins. He was released again in the spring of 1961, but in June Clifford was arrested for theft and burglary and sent back Mm. into prison. His next stint was in Ocala Prison Farm, a place we plan on doing a full episode about one day. Only a month into his sentence, one sunny afternoon, Clifford climbed the fence and escaped. He was caught later in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. In fact, between 1957 and 1968, Clifford Olson had escaped from prison seven times. This earned him the nickname Rabbit. Holy shit, I had no idea that he had that kind of uh, history. It gets better. Oh, great. Olson rarely got parole for his offenses. He was not doing good time, and it was involved in many prison rapes and violence. He shrugged it off as bad luck. (laughs) Unable to see his part in making his own fate. Clifford Olson had no conscience, and a moral compass was clearly absent. Completely. He was, as some called him, empty. Yeah. We mentioned that in the last episode. Yeah. Clifford used people as he liked, without remorse for whatever he wanted. From Peter Worthington's book Predator, The Life and Crimes of Serial Killer Clifford Olson, later on Clifford was described this way, quote, John Douglas, an expert on serial killers based at FBI's Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico, Virginia, has speculated that Olson used sexual partners not to share an emotion, 
but as convenient means of masturbating. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. I, I support John Douglas. Zero feeling at all. Yeah. These are just uh, resources for his sexual needs. In 1972, Olson was eligible for parole again, but it was revoked after he bounced some checks and was found in possession of more stolen property. He later admitted to molesting numerous children during his brief stints of freedom. Fuck. In 1974, Clifford brutally sexually attacked a 17-year-old inmate repeatedly. In 1978, while briefly out of prison, he sexually assaulted a 7-year-old girl and was sent back inside. My goodness, what more need does this guy need to do to be locked up? Oh. Also in 1978, while back in prison, an escape risk in a violent prisoner, he was moved to a super maximum unit where he met child killer Gary Francis Marcoux. Olson later testified against Marcoux, helping police obtain a conviction for child murder. Hmm. So he got some favors, right? Yeah. And he was released in 1980. Mm -hmm. Here he met Joan Hale, who he would soon have his son Clifford Olson III with while committing the 11 murders we are discussing here. <sighs> who knows how many people he would have killed had he not been in jail so long? Well, there are... There are... People who believe that Olson actually did kill some other folks because there were unsolved murders from times that he was out of jail, but mm -hmm. there's no evidence and he never admitted to it. Yeah, yeah. This brings us to August 1981. Clifford is in jail and the cops are talking to him as often as they can. They talked to a lot of people in Surrey, Coquitlam, and Burnaby as well. There were multiple instances of other children being approached by Clifford in 1980 and 81. He'd even molested a seven-year-old girl on his wedding day. Oh, my God. There could have been many more than 11 murders. A few of these people are friends of ours. My friend Pete told me a story of his own run-in with Clifford Olson. He said he was approached by Olson, who wanted him to come and paint a house with him. Can't remember if that's the exact job, but it was some yeah, menial some, task. Some, yeah. Peter said he agreed and went along to Olson's car. When he put his hand on the door handle, something told him there was something really wrong with the situation. Pete said he had to go, and he ran off, only later learning who this man was. So was this during a time? Yes, uh, the this time was during the, that time that this oh, was all going on. Wow. Yeah, chills. Lynn Wagler, a local member of the Yumberyard, shared her story with me as mm. well. She wrote this to me today. It was a warm day in 1981 when a man on a late model car pulled up beside me, wrong way on the street, so the driver's side door was inches from my elbow. He offered me a ride, which I declined. Scruffy looking, despite wearing what appeared to be an expensive shirt, he continued to pace me, his voice getting more insistent as he offered me inducements to get into the car. How about we go for lunch? Would you like some beer? I can get us some beer. Mm. Then it was cigarettes, then money, then it was drugs. Mm. I think he thought I was younger than my 19 years, standing only 5'2 and dressed in bobby socks, jean skirt, t-shirt, and wearing pigtails. I could see him scanning the area, light industrial, shuttered for the weekend, deserted. His voice got more insistent. Words like honey, sweetheart, baby belied his increasingly strident tone. I continued walking. He then revved the car and pulled it in front of me, cutting me off, exiting from the car. He reached for me. I jumped back. His voice became more frenetic, staccato, a constant litany. I think it was to stop me from thinking this constant flow of information. Come on, come on. I walked on, and he blocked me with the car again and again. 
trying to force me against a fence, a wall, or into an alcove. My body screamed for me to run, but you can't outrun a car. Too easy to slip or be pushed or run down, so I evaded again and again. Wow. At one point, he grabbed hold of my arm, but I jerked free. His eyes changed, darkened, and he started forward at me. Then I realized I was holding a rock, and I had no idea how it got in my hand, and I raised it. I said, if you come near me, I'll bash your skull in. He stopped. He shut up. He looked surprised, confused. He started toward me again, and my eyes locked on the rear plate of his car. I have your license number, I yelled, and I yelled the number at him. He recoiled, and then he glanced around. We were less than a block from a busy street. He jumped back into his car, and gravel spitted my bare legs as he peeled away. A few weeks later, I walked into a room where my husband was watching the news on TV, and I saw his image. That's the man who tried to grab me. My husband's face drained. That's the guy who's been killing all those kids. Holy shit. It would have been scary enough then to realize you were that close, potentially, to... Having your brains bashed in. Like, how amazing is she that she had the the courage... Well, she was also 19 and married, so she was clearly more savvy than he he had misread, I think, the situation. But sometimes people want to be nice. They don't want to assume Mm -hmm. bad things about people and, well, at least kind of come closer and chat with them where he can... She clearly had her radar up. It's just incredible. And what... Oh, my... Thanks for sharing your story. Wow. Yeah. The cops needed Clifford to talk about specifics to keep him behind bars for these murders. What came next was what some Canadians point to as the most controversial agreement ever with a criminal. In ways, it even outshines the Carla Molka bargain for the head of Paul Bernardo. Yeah, I remember this. This transaction was definitely a deal with the devil. Olson would only talk for one thing, money. He wanted cash to take care of his young son and estranged wife as he knew he'd never get out of jail again. Clifford wanted $100,000, or as he said, $10,000 per body, and he would throw one in for free. Oh, God. What a great guy. Just, it's just a complete douche nozzle. I, like, there's nothing about him that is redeeming. I can't think of one single thing that is redeeming about him. There is nothing. Mm. Maybe the fact that he wanted to take care of his wife and kids in some weird kid yeah, in some weird I, way. Yeah, I still think, though, that that's about him. That's selfish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh. The RCMP took Olsen up on his offer and made the backroom cash-for-bodies deal with Clifford, ensuring the money would go to his family. The following morning, Clifford was overheard on the phone call saying to his wife, Honey, you're going to be rich. This was all before the Attorney General of B.C. signed off on the deal, but eventually that happened as well. The $100,000 was put into a trust, and $10,000 would be released for evidence of each of the murders and the still-missing bodies. Olson began talking immediately, loving every minute of the control he felt he now had. Clifford relished in serving a big old shit sandwich to the cops he knew were fuming. He felt, in his twisted way, like he'd won. Yeah, yeah, I, I bet he did. And, uh, you know, and this is, the whole thing is difficult because I'm not going to knock the police. I mean, I, I, I can completely understand in the sense of this will get us closure for families. This will get us convictions. So, I mean, it's, if you don't feel that you, you're confident in having enough evidence to get all of these things solved and tried, I can understand 
but it is there, I don't think anybody feels comfortable about paying somebody to murder, essentially. Yeah. Simon Partington's body was found right where Olson said it was, near where Christine Weller's was, close to the Fraser River in Richmond. Mm. Louise Chartrand's body was uncovered and removed from the shallow grave Olson had buried her near Whistler. Ada Court and Terry Lynn Carson's skeletal remains were also quickly found near Weaver Lake. Cops took pictures of grinning Clifford while he showed them where the remains were. He coldly pantomimed each crime in detail, surely embellishing as he went. Yep, getting a high off of it, I'm sure. Sandra Wolfsteiner's bones were found off the road near Chilliwack after some searching. The original logging road was gone, bulldozed between the murder and subsequent search. The last body found on September 17, 1981, was Colleen Dagnall in the woods of South Surrey. Yeah, I mean, at least there's closure for these families. Is it, though? Okay, well... In a way. If I put myself in their shoes, being able to at least know what happened to your kid and being able to uh, bury them would provide at least some closure. It's not going to make the pain go away. Yeah. Uh, Police didn't publicly identify Clifford Olson as the man they had in custody, but they were reporting as they went along finding bodies. Mm -hmm. He was mentioned over and over again in the other articles about children missing in the Lower Mainland, so when they finally did name him, nobody was surprised. Yeah, okay. The cash for body deal uh, between Olson and the RCMP was secret for a time, but like most secrets, especially one as controversial as this, it did eventually see the light of day. And as we mentioned, you know, a lot of people were enraged. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, getting the children back for a proper burial, some people thought the price was right for that, you know? Yeah. You can at least start to move forward. But, uh, yeah, I just wish the kids were still alive and he was dead. Clifford Olson was found competent to participate in court proceedings. He was not insane at the time of his crimes. Well, he clearly knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong. Olson had to be kept clear of other prisoners. Child rapists and killers known as skinners in penal lingo are not looked upon fondly. Other prisoners seeing Olson would routinely yell and throw things at him, including lit cigarettes. Yeah, so not enough. In January of 1982, Clifford Olson pled guilty to 11 counts of murder and was given 11 concurrent life sentences. During sentencing, trial judge H.C. McKay scowled. I do not have the words to adequately describe the enormity of your crimes or to describe the heartbreak and anguish you've caused. He said, My considered opinion is that you should never be granted parole for the remainder of your days. It would be foolhardy to let you at large. Yeah, understatement for sure, yeah. Throughout the rest of his years, Olson, an escape risk and a dangerous offender, spent his time in Supermax, special handling units, Mm. or the shoe. Mm. As we mentioned, there were other murders that are yet unsolved that took place during Olson's brief stints of freedom over the years. Some people believe strongly these were his crimes as well, but he has never admitted to them. You would tend to think that up until his death, if it had happened, he would have tried to leverage that for more money. Maybe. You know, um, but, you know, trying to get into his mind is like... Yeah, well, his mind was pretty fucked up. Yeah, exactly. And he did more fucked up things from prison as well. Oh, yes, yes. Olson sent graphic letters to some of the victim's families detailing his crimes, taunting them from his prison cell. He also pestered government officials and reporters by phone and mail until his access was restricted. 
Every time he'd come up for parole, the families had to cringe dealing with the monster face to face again. Oh, the strength that just in doing that, just in being able to see him and not uh, want to tear his head off. Well, I'm sure they wanted to. Yeah, but I like I don't know if I have the strength to not. You know, well, I'd like physically, I can't tear anybody's head off, but like the strength to not lunge at him. Yeah. One of the psychiatrists who interviewed him over the years was Stanley Semrell. Hmm. He was also mentioned in our Abbotsford Killer series as having dealt with Terry Driver. Yep, yep. In his book, Murderous Minds on Trial, quote, I've mentioned the psychopathy checklist, an internationally recognized instrument for detecting engaging psychopathic traits. Developed by British Columbia psychologist Robert Hare, the PCL-R, provides mental health professionals with an in-depth means of assessing psychological and behavioral traits. Out of a maximum score of 40, 30 is considered the cutoff for formal designation as a psychopath. Hmm. Clifford Olson scored 38. Oh, wow. The highest score I have ever given in placing him in the 99.7 percentile among male prison inmates. Oh, wow. I, I get it. I get it. I'm not, you know, it seems it seems uh, appropriate, but still to like Semrau talks about the PCLR as being applied to Olson in 82 when he was first arrested. Yeah. And again in 1997 before his first faint hope hearing, and he had no change in his outcome in that intervening 15 years. So he was wow. a 38 and 82. Yeah. And he was a 38 in 1997. So no uh growth as a human being. None. Wow. The faint hope clause uh, in Canada said an offender, no matter how dangerous, can apply for parole after serving 15 years of their life sentence. Olson decided he would represent himself in his appeal. Total narcissistic move. All four character witnesses that Olson called to the stand stated that he should not be released. <laughs> and these were his character witnesses? These were his character witnesses. After one of his examinations of a witness, Olson stated, quote, I guess that pretty well summons it up, end quote. Wow. It summons it up. Wow. So he had a clear grasp of the English language Yeah, there. no, he's a, he's a genius. Sharp as a tack. Yeah. His IQ was, uh, apparently they called it dull normal, 107. Hmm. In his summation to the jury, he pleaded, ladies and gentlemen, you have seen me before you. Do I look like a raving lunatic? <laughs> the jurors remained composed, but the victim's family members broke out in uproarious laughter, punctuated with a very loud, yeah. I'm glad there was a lighthearted moment in all of this chaos. Do what, I look like what, a lo raving lunatic? What yeah, you fucking idiot. do. What an idiot. Like, that's his, that's like his closing arguments. Look at me, look at me. Do, do I look like a Do I look bird? crazy? No, you fucking look shitballs crazy. Yeah. After four days of testimony, the jury took 15 minutes to decide they were going to deny Olson eligibility of early parole. What? Amazing. I know. I you know here I was thinking, oh, he's gonna he's gonna get that chance. More insight into Clifford from Doctor Semrau from his book. One of Olson's stock defensive lines has been, "What about the hundred children I let get away?" He says he had sex with many children and only started a killing because he feared the victim would tell her mother about the sex. If only a small percentage of that is true, and he counted on young children not to talk, he was an extreme risk taker. It is another trait of psychopaths that some are prone to boredom, constantly seeking stimulation, and so they engage in risky behaviors. Olson said he committed crimes because there was nothing else to do 
and the crimes escalated. Yeah, and I got a call shenanigans on him saying that he only killed because he feared getting caught. The way he treated the bodies, no, the, the way he, he, he's yeah. done this whole thing, he, he, no, he enjoys the act of killing. Yeah, it just became part of the yeah. part of the deal. Yeah, it wasn't just about like, well, I just wanted, you know, I was afraid I'd get caught. No, no. Further on in, in Semra's book, he states, four characteristics included in the psychopathy checklist form the core of Clifford Olson's dangerousness. They are his failure to accept responsibility for his actions, his lack of remorse or guilt, his lack of emotional depth, and his callousness or lack of empathy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He goes on to say, before Clifford's male privileges were restricted, he told me he received letters from mothers of missing children asking if he knew their fate. He would write back to them, playing along suggesting he might know something such as where the child's body could be located. After a few exchanges, he would make some outrageous demands, such as asking the parent to send him a photo of herself copulating with the family dog, when occasionally he actually received a compliant response out of the parent's anguish and desperation, he would reply with something like, Ha ha, I fooled you. I, I don't know very many people worse than this. We've covered a lot of killers. This person is, I think, the worst person we are yeah. going to cover. Yeah. I don't yeah. know for sure. Uh, there may be somebody worse out there who we have yet to research, but I have not heard of a more disgusting piece of garbage. Because there are people who match his crimes yep. and exceed it, but... He was only out for four bloody years of his entire yeah, adult life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what just adds to how fucking terrible he is, is the way he continues to torture people while in prison. Yes. Like, he just does not care about anyone. No. In 2006, at Olson's second parole hearing, one parole board member said that Clifford Olson presents a high risk and a psychopathic risk. He is a sexual sadist and a narcissist. If released... He will kill again. Yeah, no doubt. So clearly he did not get out in 2006 either. Olsen had planned an escape at one time. He'd shoved a handcuff key up his rectum and was planning on escaping while attending a hospital visit for fake back issues. An x-ray revealed the key. (laughs) Found in his cell were a road map, a road atlas, a sharpened broom handle, and half a pair of scissors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One reporter claims that she has 150 hours of recorded telephone conversations with Olson. He was using a cell phone he had somehow acquired in the pen. Oh, wow. She'd pitched her story around as a podcast over the years, but there have been no takers yet. I'd actually like to hear from her and have a conversation about this, if you're listening, we did put out some feelers, but got no nibbles. So if you're out there, hmm. I'd love to talk to you about this. I wonder what the, uh, the must be requesting some lofty financial. I just want to talk to her. About yeah, it. yeah. Hmm, fascinating. So who knows how we got a cell phone? 150 hours is a lot of, yeah, of conversation. That's a lot of conversation. And people do acquire cell phones in prison. It, it happens, sadly, more frequently than we'd. He did a lot of crazy things. Yeah, yeah. He once applied for a Canada Council grant to study himself. <laughs> well, he thought he was a worthy case for study. He is. But uh, he was also uh, very upset that he wasn't as famous as Ted Bundy. What a. My God, this guy! Some claim that Olson filled hundreds of hours of videotape recounting his crimes in horrid detail. I'm sure if they ever existed, they've been long deleted or destroyed, or the RCMP have them. 
Yeah, I, I think it's either RCMP or it doesn't exist. I don't know how, um, yeah. He also loved to waste people's time. Olson once claimed that he and an accomplice were responsible for the Green River killings, which is interesting because the bulk of them occurred between July 82 and March of 1984 when he was already in jail for life at that point. Hey, but let's remember, he's dumb. Also, in his tiny cell, he had cable TV, books, magazines, and a small tape player and a radio. Well, if I remember correctly, and with the internet and stuff too, he actually went took the government to court in order to be able to, to have these things saying like, well, it's my right as a... In. Some claim the money came from fans all over the world. No way. That's, oh. uh, that could be how he afforded those luxuries. Oh. But it was probably also due to his being paid $1,169.47 a month in old age security pension when he turned 65 in 1995. Well, that's a flaw. This was disclosed to the media 15 years later in 2010, and there was an uproar thinking that this piece of garbage would be eligible for another payment by way of the GIS, or Guaranteed Income Supplement for Low-Income Canadians Who Make It to 70, which Clifford had just turned. So, so came the petitions and much public outrage. The payments to Clifford Olson were cut off in June of 2010. I remember this outrage. I, I remember all of this happening, um, and it is egregious. Yeah. He even had a MySpace page at one point. It listed his favorite books, films, TV shows, and among his list of friends, other serial killers like Charles Ng, Ted Bundy, and Charles Manson. Wait a minute, so that means that they also had? I don't know. Mm. Some thought it was a sick joke, but it displayed pictures of Olsen in jail, one we just saw. <sighs> and it turned out he did actually have some access to a computer. Mm-hmm. Yep. He even claimed knowledge of 9-11. See, this is what I'm saying. I think that if he had more victims, he he would have claimed them because he's claiming everything. He doesn't seem like somebody who's who's able to kind of like, no, I want this one just for me. Yeah. He's not that kind of, like he would, yeah, if he's claiming like, I know I have knowledge of 9-11 from here in prison. Yeah. In September 2011, Corrections Canada reported that Olson was in hospital suffering from terminal cancer. He died on September 30th, 2011. Trudy Court, Ada Court's sister, said that when she heard he was dead, she cried tears of happiness because justice is done for the children. Our justice system couldn't do it for them, but life has. He's gone now. Amen. I just hope that death of his was very, very painful. Yeah, I want him to suffer. Many, many residents of Clifford Olson's hunting grounds here in the Lower Mainland, B.C., and in Canada remember this monster very well. Mm-hmm. We all hope against hope we'll never see the like of him again. He caused so much pain. My friend David, whose last name is Olson and no relation to Clifford, who sullied that fine name, uh, wrote a poem for Simon Partington, Olson's youngest victim. David was from the same neighborhood as Simon and the same age. Here's David reading his poem. Hello, my name's Dave Olson, and I grew up in Surrey in the 70s and 80s when all the stuff about Clifford Robert Olson went down. I lived in the same neighborhood as, well, some of the kids, but especially one kid, Simon, who was abducted. Now, decades later, this, well, frankly, it still haunts me. Obviously, sharing a family name was a bit shocking. I also remember when the killer was first announced, they announced him as Robert Olson. 
and I have a grandfather, an uncle, a brother, a cousin, da 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 da, named Robert Olson. So the whole thing was extra weird for me. Anyhow, in working through this in my head, uh, I wrote a poem about Simon, one of the abductees. Simon, stolen, shame. Simon was all of us in Surrey. Simon, he exclaimed in the Max convenience store I stopped at after my paper route to buy a 7-Up. No, I said. He meant the stolen boy from Senator Reed's school. The posters were unneeded. We all knew the fear. Blonde mop, skinny boy, rosy freckled cheeks. They've gone away, faded, scarred to haunt us. He shared my family name and was charming to most all involved. It's not my shame, but the scars are. I walked the same road, yet it wasn't me. Negotiating, capitalizing, scheming, selling secrets, wrench the wound. The discovery reveals more pain until sometime a page three day this year. He left cancer like my dad, I think. 72 as well, I think. I didn't read close. I didn't need the fear again. He brought to 92nd and Scott. Cedar Hills, Wally Exchange, Guilford Muse, and King George Boulevard. These were ours, closest to a neighborhood, now faded into condo shopping schemes. Only we noticed the changes since we were all 12 years old. The paper told us he was dead. The neighbors never knew. His wife flabbergasted, and I never cried so hard as I did for Simon in 82. Thank you so much, David. I know oh. that was tough for you, buddy, and I really, really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, David, thank you. I, it was emotional hearing that. Uh, it was very... Um, it was I, I could feel. I could feel. I could feel David's sadness and pain and uh oh yeah thank you thank you for that you can listen to david's much more highbrow not true crime podcast called postcards from gravelly beach wherever you listen to your podcasts we'll put a link in our show notes give him a listen he's an interesting dude yeah in december of 2011 bill s6 came into effect repealing the faint hope clause Multiple murderers are no longer eligible for early parole. No more families will have to be subjected to that kind of appeal. Yeah, thank God. Uh, that's it for this week. Whoa. Oh. Holy smoke. I, I, I hate to say this about our show, but thank God it's over. I'm, I'm really grateful that's over, too. That was hard for me. We, we knew from the beginning of starting this and talking about Clifford Olson we wanted to do this early but we recognized right from the get-go this would be a very hard one and yeah it's it's been yeah personally hard for both of us especially with what i mentioned before my yeah. my stuff from episode 10 was yeah. going on right smack dab in the middle of all of this so i felt even though i wasn't and i know it's probably stupidly selfish to think that but i felt it was a part of me somehow and I, and this is why i'd been avoiding this story I think when you go through a trauma at the same time as such a large national trauma, 
it, it you're going to feel a linkage to it. You're going to feel like so. Well, especially with what happened at, to me at the time. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like that. Yeah. That's going to. That's absolutely going to probably even increase and exacerbate the uh, impact of that trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about something else now. Sounds great. Let's talk about uh, our Patreon patrons. Let's do that. They are good eggs. They're and there is the a best shitload of, the, oh of them again God. this week. They are the best of the eggs. They are the best of the eggs. Now, this one actually emailed me to tell me how to pronounce her name. <laughs> wow. Prior they're, they're, to. They're getting hip to your jive. They man. are getting hip to my jive that I am a mealy-mouthed poo bum yeah. and I can't speak. <laughs> Emily B. Ananas. <laughs> I hope that's actually her initial name, but I doubt it. <laughs> it is kind of funny. It's great. Yeah. So she's both bananas and uh, a pineapple. <laughs> and she's from Sweden. But uh, what do you think she does? What do I think she does? Yeah. In Sweden? Yeah. Uh, I think she's a pilot. Is she a pilot? Yeah, yeah. I don't Actually, I don't think she is. I know she's a pilot. What does she pilot, though? Swiss Air. Oh, God. We don't want to go back there. But that's what she... Not that one, but like she's... Which only goes to show her strength that... Because the similar timelines, that actually inspired her. Like, I, I need to uh, keep this going uh, there you go, yeah. So she's really, everybody give her a round of applause. Fair enough. <laughs> Leah Jones, who's a yumber yarder from Duncan, BC, and that's the home of a freaking large hockey stick, so yeah, thank well, you, I Leah. I actually really like Duncan. I do. Yeah. They used to call it Drunken Duncan, actually, when they, <laughs> back in the day. And there's Mary Sarazen. Yep, 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 she's good people. What does she do, Scott? And where is she? Oh, well, first off, she's also in Duncan. What? Yeah, she's good friends with Leah Jones. Okay. Yeah, yep. Uh, what her job is, she actually built that large hockey stick. Well, there you have it. So, do you, it's so really that's crazy. Scott not being creative and just reading the line above. Don't, don't, no, that was highly I'm creative. Not, that was highly creative. Harsh in your buzz. I'm totally harsh in my buzz. Uh, next up, Amanda Moore. Yep. Where's yep. Amanda from? Uh, she's from England. She's the uh, uh, grandniece. Of Dudley? No, no. Roger. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. The uh, James Bond that Carol likes. Yeah. And and, and uh, due to that, she was inspired to also become a secret agent. So she has her license to kill. Shit. I think I just kind of. Oh, well. Uh, you probably just had somebody killed, buddy. Oh, geez. Amy Lutz, also a Yumber Yarder. Uh, she left no address. Yep. So. Yep. Uh, and first off, like we have another Yumber Yarder and friend who I used to work with. Named mm -hmm. Lutz. I wonder if they're any relation. It's true. No, that's not even, I'm not riffing off that. That's like, well, you're true. supposed to do that now. Well, I'm going to do it, but I just thought that was interesting. Uh, so I think she's from uh, Costa Rica. Yep. No, she is. That's exactly where she's from. The left, the East Costa Rica, though. Okay. She's from East, East Costa Rica. Yes, yes. Not okay. Pretty, well, East and West Costa Rica, there's some pretty heavy feuds there, so we don't. You, it's best to make sure you, you've got that I straight. thought she was a monkey breeder. Was it, Am I correct about that? No, no. Close. Monkey wrangler. Oh, a wrangler. Yes, yes. That's that. That's pre to the breeding. Fair enough. You wrangle so you them. You have to wrangle them to- And then they breed. Yeah. 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 yeah it's a great job. It's, it's, you don't get a lot of scratches, though. Kyla Denton from Osler, Saskatchewan. Yeah. Hey, Kyla. Nikki, yeah, thank you very much. Nikki Clark from Milpitas, California. Interesting name. And thank, and welcome, and, and, or thank you, Nikki. Alicia Wolf. Yep. I think, I don't know, uh, I'm 
Wolf was actually our family name in uh, oh was it in Amsterdam? So maybe she's from the Netherlands. I yeah, yeah. I um. Well, yes, she's from the Netherlands. She may be a cigar roller like my uncle was. How did you know that? Just a wild guess. It's kind of in the Wolf family. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. There you yeah. go. But they're actually not Colombian knockoff cigars. No, no, they're really good uh, 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 Dutch cigars. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, good job, Elijah. Alicia. Alicia, Eliza, <laughs> whatever, potato, potato. <laughs> Aaron Haddo from Moreno Valley, California. That sound, It sounds like a nice place. It does. Yeah. Ky- uh, Kayla Reno mm. from Memphis, Tennessee, where my good buddy Bennett was born, and also where I do believe Elvis is buried. Uh, I wonder if, like... I want to win this race. Lemonade, a cold, refreshing drink. What the hell is going on? Hey, Scott. <laughs> what's, what's new in the zoo, Mama? I now I would like some cold, refreshing lemonade. There thank you, you go. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so thank you, Kayla. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> we know. I wonder, like, I wonder if she like loads the fact. Like, if anybody, people, I'm sure always bring up. Oh, you, you, you from Reno? Or Reno 911. Oh, but that show is money. So good. That show is money. Strawberries. <laughs> Angela White from Guelph, Ontario, and my dad went to vet school there. Oh. That's wow. where he got, he learned how to be a vet- veterinarian. Uh, he, yeah. Why doesn't he have his own show on the Discovery Network? Because he would blather. Oh, it, would be, it, would, it would be a show only your dad would watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like Barry and Ted's... <laughs> Great adventure. Great weird adventures. <laughs> oh my. And then there's uh Sagan Gersaba. Yeah. Uh I'm thinking it's Carl Sagan's ghost, maybe yeah. is is a patron. Yeah, no. It actually came and spoke to me in my sleep last night. Oh. To let me know to tell you. And I apparently don't have to. That's exactly so exactly what, what it, it's yeah. It's, Carl it's because I'm ghost. telepathic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a psychic. Psych something. Olivia Reddington from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I've never had to type that word before, so uh, that was interesting. A lot of cues in it. There are some cues. Yeah, yeah. And uh, great name. Olivia's one of my daughter's names. Chelsea Summers from Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Hey, Chelsea. And yeah, thank you. And Sharon Brouch from Cincinnati, Ohio, which is the home of WKRP. Is there actually a radio? Cincinnati. Yeah. And I always wonder. Is there an actual Herb Tarlick in, in Les Nessman? Oh, you remind yeah. me of Les Nessman. Thank you. I'm kind mm. of a Herb. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is there really a WKRP? I don't know. It's a great question. We could look it up, but yeah. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Kine from Buckinghamshire in the UK. Oh, that sounds so UK. Lily Van Reenen. Mm-hmm. Of the Van Reenen clan. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They're very well known. And they mine... Vans. Mine vans. Yeah. I, I know. Who'd have thunk it? Interesting. Who'd have thunk so it? So they but... mine, it's van mining. Yeah. So there are actual vans out there to be mined from the earth. Oh, yeah, yeah. I no, totally. The 75% of this world's vans are, are, are mine. They're all the Fords. Yes. But none of the pedophile vans. No, no, not those ones. But she, she yeah, she vans mine. She mans mine. She mines vans. I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> she, she, she mans vines. Yes, exactly. She mans vines. And it's it's a difficult job, a lot of because digging. Because you have to swing into the mine on a vine 
Yeah. So you man the vine <laughs> yes. to yep. go mine the vans. And, and when you're working with a pickaxe Fair and enough. your product is a van, you got like you have to be precise because you can't scratch or poke a hole. It's I'm telling you, it's not a job I would want. No, Chastity St. Louis from my neck of the woods, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hey, Chastity, thank hey, you. Hey, Chastity. Uh, Darius Lapointe. Yep. Unknown. No, no. No, no. Where? Uh, from. Uh, oh, I can't remember. It started with a T. Uh, Tennessee from Tennessee. Oh, okay. Tennessee, and is a professional pointer. Pointer. Yeah, a professional pointer. Oh, so points at things. Yes. Like La Pointe is like the point. Oh, so it's like Vanna White. Yes. Yeah. Well, that would be that. Yeah, that that is not Darius's job. Okay. But that is that is similar. Like you know, like professional pointers are actually becoming quite the commodity in this day's economy. Fantastic. You know, like, ha ha! Look at him, and you stand and point. And yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I thought we were done doing that, pointing at people and laughing. Well, they're trying to they're trying to not take the job into a much. Uh, oh, a, they're trying to to transcend the old. Yes, and and bring us into yes, a new. Yes, so now what they do? Thank is you, Darius like, Yeah, so now it's kind of like if you see, like you know, there's like a, a this is a long time. Very yeah, very tall building <laughs> with a crane on it, and like they stop and they like point out, like oh, look at that, like and the people look up. It's so, fantastic. It's a great career. Patty Benny, who we met at the Victoria meetup, oh. and I just thanked her in our live show. She is a sweetheart. She is a sweetie. Really awesome. Lisa Wilson from Toronto, Ontario. I was just near airport. There you go. Uh, Susan. Yep. Back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You remember her. She works at the front, though. <laughs> uh, exactly. That's what is so funny about it. Her name is Back, but she works at the front. Yeah, yeah. And her sister's name is Front, and she works at the back. So her sister's name is Front Back? Yeah. And works at the back. Yeah. That's I know. Confusing. I know this whole- But at the back of what? Uh, a shopping center. Which shopping center? The Mall of America? The, yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Which is in America. How about this guy? Anthony Danino, not somebody who you want to cross. Clearly not. No. No, just the name alone. Mobster, yeah, Jersey. the name alone says- I'm sure we just insulted the shit out of him. Don't fuck with me. Yep. Yeah. Sorry, Tony. Yeah, sorry, Tony. Don't. We mean no harm. We mean no harm. Don't. We are good people. Don't sick anybody after us. Donna Byrne from Calgary, Alberta. That's Carol's home city. Yep, I have lots of family there. Marie Paris from oh. Lewiston, Maine. Wow. So somebody who from Maine, we actually made fun of Maine in two subsequent episodes. Yeah. Well, talked about it. Yeah. And somebody actually now from Maine shows up. We wished it into happening, Mike. It's amazing. Yeah. Aaron Donnelly. Yep. Yeah, friends with Anthony De Niro, but on the Irish mob side. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah the Donnellys. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be a redhead. Oh, Mike, that's- Or is really... it black Irish, maybe? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Laura Jane Hoshino oh. from Tokyo, Japan. Oh, One Laura. of our longtime Yumber Yarders. Yeah, she's a total cool cat, and she loves cats. Yes, she does. Yes, she totes loves cats. Jessica Tan Quinn from Pickering, Ontario. Thank you, Jessica. Maggie Walks from Bedford, New Hampshire. New Hampshire in the house. <laughs> Lena Neville from Maple Ridge, BC. And I used to own a place in Maple Ridge, and we and hated I, our neighbors there. And I've been there. Maple You've Ridge. You've been there? I've been to Maple Ridge often. Yeah. Yeah. And Gianna Scott from 
Annandale, Minnesota. Wow, wow. I, I suspect, I don't know, we probably don't have them as uh, Patreons yet, but we've. I think we've got a lot of new listeners in um, uh, Atlanta. I'll, t- oh. I'll, I'll tell you about that in the after show. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. If you want to help us, you can support us at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. This week, we did get some donut money from Ryan Duffy, and I presume he works in a tavern. Yeah, clearly. Yep. Clearly. There's Phoebe Brown. Yeah. Uh, Brown with no E. No, so she spells it wrong. He incorrectly yeah. spelled brown. She yeah. spells it like the color. Yeah. No, no. Come on. Uh, there's Marinda Differ, yeah. but I'm wondering how she differs. No, she begs to. She begs to differ. Yep. And then finally, we have Karen Meany, yeah. who should change her name to Nicey. Because she's totes nice. Because she's totes nice. <laughs> if you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to our show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Yeah. You like how I clean that up a little yeah, bit. Very, very efficient. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. And most importantly, mm-hmm. please tell mm-hmm. your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. The most powerful. Look at the uh, My Favorite Murderer. Absolutely. That was words from a mouth. <laughs> that uh, got us 500,000 downloads oh, in a month. Uh, join us in our closed Facebook group called The Yumber Yard. It's full of good eggs who call themselves Yumberjacks or mm-hmm. Yumber Yaks, if you must. Oh, I got to find that photo of me as a Yumberjack and post it. There you go. Yeah. So that's it for this week. <sighs> Until next week. There's no, no There's no part three of Clifford Olsen. There is isn't, no. Sweet fuck. Thank God. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple like Clifford Olson. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.